0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 129 with Ben Bratt. Ben knows a whole lot about what makes teams great and he shares with us, one, the 16 variables of a great team, two, why 80% of the teams you're on are not effective and what to do about it, and three, an approach to creating an open discussion of the key strengths and weaknesses of your team. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items mentioned here, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep129. And I recommend hanging out at awesomeatyourjob.com for a moment. Check out some of the cool stuff from the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course to the Gold Nugget email summaries from each of our guests, the summary wisdom from them in a quick email. So here's a quick story about Ben. Bennett Bratt's passion is engaging teams and transforming people-related systems. In his current role as the principal and founder of the Team Effectiveness Project, Ben's quest is to unlock the true power of teams, leaders, and communities. His team elements approach helps teams demystify their team experience and take positive ownership for the current situation and path forward in a truly inclusive way. Over 20 years, Ben gained global experience and broad leadership expertise at T-Mobile, Sun Microsystems, Ford Motor Company, and Silicon Valley startup company, Model E. He earned graduate degrees in political science from Tulane University and in counseling from Michigan State University. Here's Ben. Ben, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, wonderful to be with you. Oh, well, I'm so excited to dig into your wisdom here. But first, I'd like to have a blast from the past if we could. Could you tell us what does a cryptologic technician in the Navy do? Is it as cool as the Imitation Game movie? <laughs> Wow, that was 30 some years ago. And,
1: <laughs> and I think when I, I recall leaving,
0: I signed a 50 year non disclosure. okay. So, sorry. But,
1: now, you know, <laughs> the work is fascinating and it, uh, yeah, probably had a great start there at the end of World War II. Largely, I think the world of cryptology is in two different pieces. One is perhaps listening in or eavesdropping on other navies or perhaps governments and decrypting what it is they're talking about. The other side would be absolutely protecting the U.S. Navy's information and communications through great cryptology and coding of communications. I handled more of that second piece. So I lived in Hawaii for a couple of years and Japan for a couple of years and was on a ship for a while, making sure that America Navy communications secrets were kept through cryptology.
0: Oh, that's great. Well, I will not pressure you to violate any agreements or disclose anything, (laughs) Sure. but I'm imagining that's probably interesting work in terms of, you know, discovery or breakthrough. And I imagine it being drudgery on most days, but occasionally thrilling. Is that accurate or what was your experience?
1: Exactly. It was days of sheer boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. That's how we would describe it.
0: (laughs) Not much upside, I guess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, it was a great job. I wouldn't have chosen any other job in the Navy. It was fantastic.
0: Well, it seems more recently, you've also cracked the code on sort of teamwork, teaming and that stuff. So tell us, why did you come to believe that teams are so critical? And what's the story of your fascination there and the start of Team Elements?
1: Yeah. In the late 90s, I was at Ford working with large product development teams, very cross-functional, maybe 300, 400 people, often from people around the world speaking different languages, trying to design a car. And if you can imagine, it was awfully complex and competing interests, but also a real desire to get something done. And so helping teams become effective, be it we're increasing trust or better communication, helping them make decisions I found it to be a very applied, very high leverage way of helping to improve business results. And over the years, in about 2006, developed my own methodology for how to help teams. And so for the last 10 or 11 years, I've been focused heavily on teams. But I think when I look nowadays at teams, and I look at folks who are either just starting their careers or early in their careers, we look at organizations. And I take a couple like Google that did quite a bit of research over two years to find out what made their most effective teams effective. And of course, what everybody was thinking was, you just put the brightest and most brilliant individual contributors on a team. But their research never found that. It found that the variables that were most predictive of great teams producing great results were things like the ability to establish norms, of great listening and empathy, or for leaders being able to create psychological safety. And when you look at studies out recently from Josh Burson, Burson by Deloitte, Josh and his team are saying that when you look at 2016, 2017, all the way up to 2020, the number one trend that keep executives up that night isn't so much leadership or culture or workforce analytics or engagement. It's now how they structure their organizations to work in teams, teams of teams, quickly forming teams, teams that have to partner with vendors partner across the functions, even partner with people who used to be their competitors. And so our ability to work in small social systems, to quickly form trust, to quickly get the basics of teamwork down, it is becoming the way that work gets done. In fact, I wanted to ask you a question. Oh, do tell. So, yeah, quite often when we work with a client, we start with a question of, how many teams are you on? And I noticed that you were at Bain & Company, and I was just wondering if you had any perspective when you were in that work environment, how many teams were you on?
0: You mean at one time or like over the whole uh, duration? Yeah, like at one time, like not only at work, but at home.
1: So, you know, you might be on X number of teams at work, but then also come home and you're on a soccer team or an HOA or a PTA or something.
0: Oh, no sure thing. So at work, it was actually pretty contained. I'd say three, my primary consulting team. Secondly, the recruiting team, you know, get some talents from the schools I was visiting there. And three, it could be just sort of like an extracurricular thing, whether it's like the Bain World Cup, you know, event or something. So that was that. And then at home, well, I guess there's numerous in terms of like church and volunteering and accountability groups. So let's just go with life total seven-ish. Perfect.
1: Perfect. The average answer we've gotten over 10 years is that the number of teams people are on is around nine simultaneously. Nine. And we actually had one busy CFO tell us he was on 29 teams, and I completely believe him. Mercy. And then we ask a follow-up question. What percentage of those teams would you really say are effective or highly effective? And at best, we get something like 20%. In other words, four out of five teams that people are on, they themselves would say just aren't effective And that's just an amazing statistic because what in your life do you put up with really working 20% of the time? (laughs) You wouldn't put up with your car starting 20% of the time or your wireless giving you a good signal 20% of the time. And yet somehow we organize thousands, millions of people into teams every day and we ourselves only say that about maybe 20% of them are effective.
0: Well, that's striking.
1: And then we asked a third question like, okay, for the teams that don't work, what percentage actually get any help? And it tends to be between 0 and 5%. So we've created a world in which we use Teams as the primary organizing device, and we expect value creation through them. And yet they don't work, and we don't do anything to support them. And then you see other societal trends, like more and more people working remotely or working from home. We don't always have that opportunity to sit face-to-face, and yet work gets done in Teams. So how can people collaborate well and trust and communicate and make decisions and resolve conflict in this evolving world. And I think particularly for millennials, last point, there is just across the board a declining trust in the big institutions in our lives. You look at Gallup poll data, people just don't believe much anymore in Congress or the presidency or in education. And if you look at millennials in particular, they have low degrees of trust in the media and in justice organizations and education. And I think people end up moving more towards these small social systems to find meaning and productivity and connection and relationship. And the more this goes on, the more teams just become vitally important to our lives and to society and how we get stuff done. So that's part of the genesis behind why the Team Effectiveness Project and why we've developed team elements to help teams really be able to move through this at some speed.
0: Well, yes, that is a compelling story there, and indeed, that big stuff at stake. So, well, can you share with us then You know, some of these key discoveries? You talked about Google's research, and you've also, on your website, I saw an intriguing sentence. You said, teams made the most progress when they were able to have meaningful conversations in a highly targeted way on the topics that mattered most to each team. Can you share with us if that's kind of the scoop? You know, what are the primary holdups, roadblocks, stuff getting in the way of that happening?
1: Our approach takes each team as uh, an individual. Pete, I imagine you're a messy guy. I'm a messy person. (laughs) You know, we're just all trying to get through life. And when you take that and multiply it by 10, you put 10 people in a team. A team is a messy place, but it's also radically unique. The people who come to the team have very subjective beliefs about. What is enough trust? Sometimes we'll work with a team and we'll say, is there enough trust in this team? And of course, that's a purely subjective question, not an objective question. And four people will say yes, and three people will say no, and three people will say, why in the world are we talking about trust? It's Mm -hmm. not even important. And so what we want to do is help each team in its uniqueness find the things that are most important to that team. So in other words, rather than saying, every team needs to go through this conflict resolution methodology or trust building approach it's more like well let's find of these 16 things and you can see them on our website which are most important for this team so we were working recently with a team that was really struggling with clear responsibilities and the lack of clear responsibilities was getting in the way of all sorts of things like their ability to hold each other accountable their ability to accomplish their goals And it's even more insidious because lack of clear responsibilities means I don't know what you're supposed to do. And when you start to not do what I expect, I begin to not trust you. So we question even people's intentions and motives and ethics. And so that team needed to do a deep dive into each of their responsibilities and to get them clear and to share them with each other and to find the gaps and overlaps. And when they can do that, that team unlocked huge amounts of productivity So that statement on the website's about we wouldn't want to put anybody through a sheep dip peanut butter. Everybody has to go through the same thing. We would almost rather find like individualized medicine. If you think about where the field of medicine is heading in like 10 years, there will be prescriptions that are just for your genome, for your particular illness and your genetic makeup. We think that we can do that with teams, that teams, they're important. They deserve highly tailored. Solution sets, discovery and insights, and solution sets that bring them to the place where they're optimizing their outcomes.
0: I hear that, and that absolutely makes good sense that you want to get the customized, targeted, perfect medicine that just really hits the spot for what is ailing a team and diagnosing that sharply and giving that to them. Nonetheless, Ben, I'm gonna put you on the spot if I may, just thinking a little bit about the 80-20 rule here. From your experience, you know, what are some of the perhaps most common sort of trouble spots that you sort of see again and again and some of the most helpful interventions that get the job done for them?
1: Great question. What we're beginning to see is that some things vary by types of team, and our hunch is that things also vary by things like demographics, like the gender diversity on the team, or the generational diversity on the team. And so we're discovering those yet. What we've seen recently is a lot of teams that are struggling with those clear responsibilities. Also, with openness, it's interesting that when things start to go south on the team and people go more into self-preservation mode, that openness, that sense that I can trust you and that it's safe and I can be open, begins to get attenuated a bit. And when that openness shuts down, All sorts of other things creep into the team dynamic. So literally just working with a team on how they can be more open on critical issues. And of course, that's not all teams, but some of the teams we've worked with recently. So that can be as simple as running something called like a fishbowl dialogue session, where if we have 12 people on the team, we might put four on an inner circle and eight around an outer circle. And the people in the four in the middle talk about one of the critical business issues on the team. And the eight around the outside must listen and listen closely to what's going on. And everybody gets their chance on the inside. And it really provides this little crucible for the conversation to take place where people know they'll be heard. People know they can be open. It's a facilitated dialogue. And it renews a sense of openness, like we're not going to be held hostage anymore by undiscussables. We can move this forward. So there's lots of great tools from lots of people that can help with these 16 different elements. We tend to pull just the right set for a client based on what's going on for them.
0: Understood. That makes great sense. But when I think about the openness piece, part of me visualizes a team that there's a history of sort of reprisals or judgment or looks of contempt and dismissiveness I'd imagine when you see openness is at a low in a team, it's because there's been some historical precedent that has sent that message explicitly or implicitly. Your perspective on this matter is not really valuable here. So I guess I'm wondering within the suite of tools, if that's kind of the history at work, that seems like a thorny one, a sticky one. How would you go there?
1: Yeah, and a lot of these 16 are connected also. It's a systems thinking view of the world. And so in that case, I might go over to norms for a moment. So behavioral norms, that we have rules of the road that give us guidelines for how we can act and what's acceptable and what's not. Very pragmatic behavioral norms. And I think for some teams, they can find themselves in a set of norms that they actually don't like. That, hey, our norm is that it's okay, we roll our eyes at each other. Okay. And I think if we could, you know, let's list the 10 norms in this team that set the rules for how we behave with each other, and then let's put them in two buckets. The ones that are really effective at helping us drive this team forward and the ones that are slowing us down or getting in our way. And sometimes if we can take a slightly removed viewpoint from an issue in a team, rather than diving into the deepest heart of the issue, we can look at it in terms of data. We can look at it in terms of just analytically what's going on with these norms it creates a little bit of a safer zone and so we can also talk about the team's vision like where do you want this team to be and hey you know somebody might want a team that we don't roll our eyes at each other great let's talk about that and so there's a lot of different ways we can get into just the core conversations
0: oh understood well so now thinking about getting the precision there with the 16 elements and what is most needed how do you figure that out in the first place
1: Yeah, we have a uh, methodology we've developed and used for the last 10 years. And so what we do is we ask each participant to look at these 16 elements and we say, what are the six most important for you that help this team move forward? And of these six, are they strengths or weaknesses? So if we were on a team, you might say, wow, a core strength for us is decision making. This team knows how to make decisions together, but a real weakness might be shared vision. And you get to make six votes like that. I also get to make six, and everybody in the team gets to make six. And by forcing this level of importance first, what we're going to do is find the data that the preponderance of us believe are the most important levers for productivity in the team. That used to be a very manual process. We'd put up a poster on the wall and give everybody voting dots, and it's actually a lot of fun to watch your teammates put like a vote for weakness on trust or put a vote for strength on goal achievement. We've recently developed an app, and so it's all a very easy-to-use, secure, confidential approach where people get a link on their phone or on their computer. It takes about five minutes. They make their vote. The data goes right into a database and pops up into an anonymous, confidential slide that shows them exactly what everybody in this team believes to be the strengths and weaknesses. Then we use that to get to a conversation around all right, this insight shows us that if we just picked one or maybe two of these things, we'd get better business results.
0: You know, I love that so much. It is so simple and practical and on the money. Yes, it, and it becomes great because no one has to take it personally. You know, it's like if there's 16 of them and if there's six votes, is it three positive, three negative? Is that how that works?
1: Not necessarily. I mean, if, you know, you might put six positive and zero oh, okay. negative. And I might be the opposite. I mean, you have range.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay. It's so, that's so fascinating because I'm wondering now about sort of the nominal leader in these sorts of meetings and conversations. Like if they have a boatload of negatives, (laughs) you know, just what's that energy like in the room? Are they just like, oh, you know, (laughs) or angry? It's like (laughs) you ungrateful (laughs) colleagues, you know, how does that go? You know. What
1: we're really driving towards are insights. Yes. We tend to focus on three things, insights, ownership, and inclusion. So what our process does, both through the data and the model and the consulting, is bring people a set of insights they've never had before, which help them take deep ownership of what's going on and then ownership of where they want to get to. And we do it in a way that's very inclusive so that we help the team see the signal from the noise. And the leader, quite often, yes, can... This is a real test of leadership to listen everybody have a transparent, authentic conversation about what's going right and what's not. And one of the things we say is that when we're actually doing this, that is in itself, that discovery process, is an intervention that we must have a sense of safety and trust and openness to Mm -hmm. even engage in this conversation. Yes. So we're building the bridge as we walk on it. And yeah, you can watch people fold their arms and get defensive or, you know, the fascinating thing happens. We had a team once sometimes we do pre-interviews with the clients. And I was talking to this woman, and I said, tell me about this team. And she said, oh my goodness, what a bunch of snakes. Mm. There's no trust on this team. I mean, I look at this team, I watch our team meetings, there is no trust. I said, fascinating, great. We got in the room, we did our voting, we looked at the data, and we looked at trust. And there were eight votes for strength and one vote for weakness. Oh. And it becomes apparent, like, you know, I think to this woman, like we go through life with our filters and with our predetermined decisions about what's going on. And I mean, nobody knew what each other was going to vote. But eight of the people on the team said, trust is a real strength here. And I think what that does is allows somebody to recalibrate their life experiences into this team. I mean, nobody told her she was wrong. It's just simply, though, when we give people a chance to talk about it, we'll say, hey, look nine votes on trust, eight for strength, the one for weakness. Who'd like to tell us about why you voted this way? You know, we'll give you a voice and you can explain your point of view and then you can calibrate and see other people might be feeling different ways about it. And it's okay. We won't get hung up on that.
0: Mm, that's great stuff. Okay. Well, thank you. So will you tell me, Ben, is there anything else you want to make sure we cover off before shifting gears and talking about some of your favorite things? No, let's keep moving. It's great. Okay, let's do it. Well, can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah, can I give you two? Please. The first
1: one, this was from Muhammad Ali. Service to others is the rent you pay for your room here on earth. Oh, yeah. And you know, this is a guy with a really substantial ego that matched his incomparable skills. He was the greatest of all time. And yet he came with this profound sense of service, which I think is the call to your listeners and to me and to you, which is how do we match our ambitions and our need for career development and whatever else with a sense of service to the team? The other quote I'd give you, tell me if you know where this is from, coffee is for closers. Have you heard that before? Oh, is that
0: Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross? That's right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just love that movie. First of all, I'm from Seattle, so coffee is for everyone. So <laughs> Pete, when you're in town, come on over and we'll make you a cup. Oh, thank okay. you. But, you know, it's like, The movie is such a case study in how not to run a team. You know, it goes into belittlement and emotional and all sorts of things. And it's like, coffee's for everybody. But you know what? We can still have really pointed conversations around performance and goals and rewards. But let's not do it like Alec Baldwin did in that movie.
0: Oh, yes. The leads are weak. You are weak. (laughs) That's right. And that's the way to go. All right. And how about a favorite study or experiment or piece of research?
1: Yeah, it's going to sound nerdy, but I'm a fan of all types of science, but in particular astrophysics and this thing in our lives right now about not really understanding the universe in terms of dark matter and dark energy. And I love this thing about dark matter, which is apparently like 32% of the universe, and we don't have a clue what it is, and we can't see it, and all we can really kind of do is see the effects of it how galaxies are formed and how they form strings of galaxies in the universe. And sometimes I see this as like teams are the dark matter of organizations. We just don't see them very well. It's hard to see your team, but we see the effects of them. And I think there's a, this is false equivalence. I'm not trying to equate the science of teams with astrophysics and dark matter, but it almost feels like we're on parallel journeys a little bit. We're trying to figure out what is this stuff and what's the role of it in our lives And how do we unlock it? And I find that fascinating. And so I love these studies that continue to come out about dark matter and what it might be. And I think in my lifetime, I'd love to see us figure that out and teams too.
0: Uh And how about a favorite book?
1: I love a book called Cloud Atlas. It's by David Mitchell, came out in 2004. It's a beautiful series of six stories that kind of trip over each other throughout time and weaves threads in between them. It's a very systems, but also dystopian view of the world and how our journeys are connected for better or for worse.
0: Okay, thank you. And how about a favorite tool, a product or service or app or software, just something that helps you be awesome at your job? I'm a big fan of Apple. I have Apple things around. I'll
1: tell you though, you know, this team elements thing we were talking about? Mm -hmm. I hope my kids aren't listening. I sometimes use it with the family here. It's like, you know, when you're talking with Your children or your friends and you find out that people aren't really taking the opportunity to be fully open about something. You can use the model. You can use the app and you can actually go back and say, I wonder why. Why aren't people being open? And what could I do? What could I do to increase the safety or the trust in this conversation? And so it's almost like a little thing that once it embeds in your brain, you can see what goes on every day with you, with people. And I think in some ways that's a tool. For me, it's just a tool for human relationships.
0: Well, that's great. And to follow up, you said you can use the tool. Are you suggesting that any of us can just use this app without paying your consulting firm large sums? (laughs) No. no. Here's what
1: you can do. You can go to the website and you can look at those 16 things. I mean, it's not rocket science and it's not a mystery. And you can print it out and stick it in your notebook or get a screen cap grab of it and, you know, put it somewhere and just say, I wonder what's going on in this team. But no, if you want to use the app, we can talk later. That's fine.
0: Okay, that's good. Well, thank you, Ben. That's generous. It sounds like you have offered your permission for us to print and manually benefit from your hard-won wisdom. Yes. But we should also hire you is what I'm hearing.
1: That'd
0: be great. (laughs) Okay. That's very fair. Thank you. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that helps you be more awesome at your job?
1: You know what? It's a habit I think I picked up when I was at T-Mobile when I was an executive there. I started asking at the end of every conversation I would have somebody, quite often a one-on-one conversation, I'd ask the question, What can I do to help you? Mm -hmm. And I think one, it's a little bit disarming, but two, it actually gave me opportunities to help people. And I think what it does is establishes human connections between us. And quite often somebody would say, oh, no, you can't help me, but here's what I'm struggling with. And I would just listen to them and then maybe help them reframe what was going on or crystallize that into an action they could take. And I just wonder sometimes what the world would be like if we just all ended conversations with, hey, what can I do to help you? And I think it just kind of keeps me moving forward and helps other people keep moving forward.
0: Oh, great. Thank you. And how about is there a particular articulation of your message that really seems to resonate and get people you know, taking notes or retweeting and connecting with folks deeply?
1: We quite often use an acronym. The acronym is SNOW, S-N-O-W. And we think our first order of business is, I said this before with that dark matter, it's to help people actually see their teams. If you can, here we go, see, name, own, and work. So if I can help you actually see your team, your team of eight people or 10 people, what's going on in 16 different elements and help you name the real core strengths, but also help you name the things that are holding you back. I'm going to give you a chance to own it. You can now step forward and say, I own this team and I own my role on this team and the ways in which I'm helping it and not. And if we can get there, there's nothing we can't do. We can work on this. And so snow, If you can see it and you can name it, you can own it, you can work on it.
0: Oh, thank you. And what would you say is the best way to contact you or if folks wanna learn more about what you're up to, where would you point them?
1: Yeah, I think the website, teamelements.com. Reach me directly at ben at teamelements.com and on Twitter at benbrat1 and on LinkedIn and on Facebook. So lots of points of entry. Happy to chat with
0: everybody. Oh, thank you. And do you have a final parting challenge or call to action for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs?
1: I would say, you know, I think that the future, particularly for your listeners in their careers and in their lives, is finding out the way to be the great team leader. I think the leaders of the future are the people who will be able to gather people together. And I also think what's available for a lot of us is to be great team members. And so putting all that hierarchy away What can I do in this moment to help the team be great? And if you do that, I think you'll enjoy your life. You'll enjoy your job. You'll be a part of effective, small social ecosystems. And it makes the journey a heck of a lot better. Just own your piece no matter what your role might be.
0: Mm, That's great. Thank you. Well, Ben, this has been a very fun conversation. I'm excited to think through these 16 elements myself and work through it a bit. So this has been a total pleasure. And tell me, what can I do to help you? <laughs> no,
1: I was going to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? When you're in Seattle or I'm in Illinois, we'll get together and have a cup of coffee. How about that? Coffee is for closers, man.
0: <laughs> perfect. Well, thank you. Looking forward to that. And until then, great. Thanks, Pete. I think that's so great to really just check in and see if we had to vote, what shows up as areas of strength and areas of weakness, and what can we do about it? And just honestly, noticing that no team is perfect. And we're going to take some time to get to the bottom of what can give us a big bang for a buck is so cool. And generous of Ben to share, we can go right onto the website, identify those 16 things and take a quick look yourself, but hire him if you can, (laughs) because I know we appreciate that sort of thing. So if you want to check out again, the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items mentioned, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep129. And I recommend, please push the subscribe button if you haven't already. You'll hear from our next guest, Mark Babbitt. He'll get you thinking a little bit. Should you get an intern? You're worth it. And is that worth it in terms of the time and the money and the quote unquote babysitting? He's got some cool perspective. So I hope to catch you then and peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.